1: Hi, this is Tracy Slatton hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show today. We have a great show lined up. I'm really excited to hear about it. I am also grateful and humbled that so many people are listening to this show. I'm getting a lot of listens in the archive. So welcome to everyone who comes and listens. I hope you enjoy what you're hearing. And you know, email me if you want to request other people or if you have questions of people who are coming on the show. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers, and today I have a pretty unconventional guy to talk, so I'm all excited. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516. Four five three six zero five two, and you can also live chat me at blogtalkradiocom slash independent thinkers Email me in between shows if you want to suggest a guest or if you want to have me ask questions of a particular guest who's going to be on. You can reach me at Tracy at com and that's Tracy T R A C I. In the coming weeks, some great guests are coming on. Next week on Thursday, April 30th, mezzo-soprano opera star Elizabeth Deschamps will be on at 1 p.m. So excited to have her. The opera world is completely in love with her. She's mesmerizing audiences around the world. and God, what a fabulous voice. Dr. Bruce Cole, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., will be on at a special day and time, Monday, August 3rd at 11. So that's Push back a few days. He was supposed to come on the 6th, but he's coming on Monday, August 3rd at 11. And he'll talk about art and architecture in our country's most public venues. And he'll talk about our country's heritage of art. Very cool. On Thursday, August 13th at 1 p.m., Dr. David Rico, one of my favorite authors, will be on. Dave Rico is a union psychoanalyst and author, and he's written some books I really love, including How to Be an Adult and the Power of Grace. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk radio page to find out who will be on the show. And I am absolutely delighted today to have Gideon Irving, a modern-day troubadour, on the show. Gideon Irving is a native New Yorker and a 21st century troubadour, bringing a variety of his stovetop folk shows to homes across the U.S. and beyond. When asked, what is stovetop folk, Gideon describes it as, a bit of this and some of that and we're going to ask him more about that we're going to get him to you know define it a little bit more he weaves his banjo, bazooki, shroudy box, mbira, jew's harp, electronics, harmonium, ocean harp and other gizmos into an eclectic song story hybrid during his live performances how cool is that since returning from his way, his Way over there tour in New Zealand where he played in 80 homes across the South and North Islands for over four months, traveling by bicycle with instruments towing in a trailer behind. He has toured across the U.S. seven times by Subaru. In October of 2012, he launched his staying put tour, traveling home to home through New York City on rollerblades while pushing a modified shopping cart with all his gear And in 2015, he toured Living Here, a map of songs in collaboration with the Foundry Theater through homes in the five boroughs of New York City. Remember, I promised you the unusual journey, so I think we're hearing about it. He has brought his solo shows and his two-man show, The Gideon and Hubcap Show, to over 400 homes thus far. This summer, he will bring his two-man show to Edinburgh Fringe for a three-week run at the Underbelly, followed by three months of solo touring through homes in Germany, England, Scotland, and Ireland, and he will be premiering his new Kids Home Show with partner Hubcap in spring of 2016. When Gideon tours through homes, he's always collecting contacts from members in the audience for future possible home show hosts down the line. Audiences add their contact ideas by hand to his maps of the U.S. and the world after the show. Any possible contacts are gratefully welcome to, and I'm going to say it, and then I'll try to spell it if necessary. It's true, my name is Gideon at gmail.com. So that's I-T-S-T-R-U-E-M-Y-N-A-M-E-I-S-G-I-D-E-O-N at gmail.com. Gideon has been writing songs since he was a tiny tot, but started playing banjo in 2007. He started playing old time and bluegrass, but soon was writing his own songs, influenced by West African griot music, two Van Throat singing, Garage Folk, Dark Side, Julia Reed, Yukon Grody, Know How On, You Won't, Pastries, Traditional Irish, Broadway show tunes and Friends. He's currently raising money on Kickstarter to bring his show to Edinburgh Fringe. So, Gideon, welcome, and thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Tracy.
1: Well, I'm really excited to have you, and I love that you call yourself a troubadour, and I'd love to hear, let's start out with what exactly is Stovetop Folk? Can you explain it?
0: Yeah, um, I hope that I can always never quite explain it, such that, uh, It'd be an evolving thing. Stove Top Folk is m- my name for doing whatever I want in people's homes. <laughs> um, so it started off as just uh, songs on a bunch bunch of instruments in, uh, in New Zealand, and then stories started getting added and kind of interactive audience participation moments, and uh and more theatrical elements, and then magic started getting thrown into it, and little moments of circusry, mayhem. Uh, (laughs) So Stovetop Folk is just a kind of eclectic, uh, vaudevillian variety show of sorts.
1: We love mayhem, A. And B, I was going to say, it sounds like a 21st century new form of vaudeville.
0: Uh yeah yeah it's it's been called that at times I, my my two man show is is very much a kind of neo guerrilla vaudeville act um and my solo shows that I tour are a little less uh there's a little less shtick a little less like ham bone in it uh but still uh, of a similar spirit of fun and basically yeah in in my stovetop folk quest I'm just trying to create uh, an evening full of surprises for people uh, I really like keeping material from my show off the internet so when people end up at my shows in people's homes they know very little about me or maybe they know what my story is or my journey is or what I do but they don't know what the show is like other than it's been recommended by a friend and it's a fair amount of work to keep it that way and not you know I have people doing videos in a show and posting it to YouTube but I love that I and uh and me and my partner have have maintained that because uh you know people sit down they think they're going to hear some folk songs and then you know something's on fire there's you know something flying through the air there's uh just a, a kind of orchestrated chaos that no one expected um or everyone in the room is 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 singing all of a sudden and I I really cherish those those surprises and i'm always looking to make more of them and kind of crafting shows that are um that are always changing so if if you know if a banjo was played in one song it's the next number is never going to be a banjo or often in the show like every number or every act is with a different instrument or in a different mode because uh, that's kind of what i enjoy when i go to the theater just Everything's switching up all the time. And I was inspired by an artist uh, who plays in people's homes, Julian Koster. Uh, he's a saw player for Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, and me and, and my buddy Hubcap, we saw him do a show in Bayside, Queens, three years ago. No, four years ago now. And it was just the most eclectic, interesting, kind of inspirational um, Journey we'd we'd been on in a performance, and and seeing that happen in a home just totally inspired me to kind of make my own own way with that space.
1: So you're talking about what um, I notice is you're talking about the qualities of delight and surprise. Yeah,
0: yeah, and surprise being paramount. I mean, I come from a family that kind of has an excessive relationship with surprise. We never tell each other we're going to be somewhere. We're always making up some story that we're somewhere else or we're busy and then we're jumping out of corners or, you know, out of closets or or showing up with uh, confetti cannons. And I think that growing up around that and being exposed to so much theater and performance growing up in New York City, um, I just... I need and want to be wowed and caught off guard in in a show and, uh, and kind of use that as, as my guiding force.
1: So what do you think people get out of, what does your audience get out of surprise and delight? What is, what does that yield them?
0: Um, I don't know, a break from the banal patterns of our daily life. Um, and, I think also it's it's really rare to go to a performance where uh, you don't even have the option to know exactly what's going to happen. You know, we do research, we yelp things, we, we want to know what the best is, and we want to make sure something doesn't suck, so we watch YouTube videos of it and everything. And kind of going to a show where you don't really have any idea what's going to happen, uh, and you don't really understand it, although I guess I'm explaining it a little bit here, so <laughs> bummer for you out there. Um but yeah, that's a very unusual position that we put ourselves in. Um so I get you know, we get those those risk takers at our show and then uh them having gone through that experience, I think it's I think it's uh it's just unusual this day and age. And then on the flip side of that not being able to like research it visually or audially, um I always ask people usually in a performative and, and fun way that's part of the show to not take video and photos and to kind of just be with us and sit in the room for for this show and that also is an increasingly unusual thing for people to uh to do you know outside of the mainstream theater people are experiencing performance through their through their phones and and uh that's just an added layer. Uh, that I think brings us closer together as a as a
1: group, so I'm noticing what you say um you talked about lifting out of the banal and ordinary of everyday life, and that's sort of one of my um theses is that art is uplifts us and it's transformative, and so you're talking about that you know in a kind of roundabout way about your music, the stove top folk, and also you're talking about being present and not being mediated by anything so immediate and presence. Mm
0: -hmm. yeah yeah I mean that's kind of what draws me to playing in people's homes too Um, you know the the presence and the effect that that small group all has on each other you know uh, the, the shows are so much more than just like me playing for an audience and then them leaving with that you know there's everyone coming into the home and the conversations we're having before the show and them interacting with the set and and wondering how the set is, you know, revealed and how the props or the instruments are revealed or, you know, hidden from people. So there's this whole pre-show that we're creating with each other. And then there's the show, and it's incredibly close. I can see everyone's face. I can see how they're responding. I can see who, you know, I want to give more attention to or who's... Uh, who I want to draw in in further but there's no illusions playing in a in a home as to what is and what isn't working you know because it's so it's so close um and that's a great gift for an artist to kind of develop their work you know i think uh i could have never grown the degree i have in the last 4 years playing in clubs or even a the theater because the the feedback from the audience is so obscured. You know, you look out and it's dark or, uh, you know, people are coming and going. And uh, so it's a great, it's a great kind of test kitchen. And then, yeah, after the performance, there's, you know, this wonderful mingling that happens and uh, and things to interact with from the show, you know, keep, keeping this whole process alive by the connections from people in audiences. So, I've played in like 400 homes, and that's all found from audience members drawing their friends' contacts on my maps afterwards, in that they're creating a huge kind of visual installation because I filled up 18 big maps just covered in people's handwriting. And the more a map gets filled, the more excited audiences are to add to it because it just draws them in visually and it's, and it's tactile, you know, we're, we're on the computers all the time. It's, it's just fun to participate in something that you can, you can touch. Um, and I can draw, you know, all my shows and all my hosts and all the homes back in these like endless spider web of connections, you know, that go across the world now. And I've gotten something like 1500 contacts in 48 countries you know, from from just a couple of years of doing this, so yeah, all those all those lines of connection and kind of like proximity, just in the space, uh, help us. I don't know, pay attention to each other for that night and allow for uh, you know interesting connections to be established. And also, it's it's uh it's often a really great thing for for the host too, you know, because most people don't do this kind of thing. You know, it's an unusual thing for them. And often my experience after people have hosted a show is they're kind of like, why don't don't we do that more? You know, like, why isn't this something we do as people rather than a novelty? Yeah, just culturally. And I'm like, well, we, you know, we did, you know, like on the evolutionary clock like we did five minutes ago. You know, this is how people used to perform. It's only a very recent phenomenon that it's fallen away from being in people's homes and community spaces to these kind of like isolated um venues all the time. And uh and so I think it makes sense that kind of home shows uh and performing in people's homes is kind of coming back in, in a in a wonderful wave.
1: You're talking about a relational art that gets back to human roots of presence and immediacy and interacting with each other and being tactile.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, this is this is a very old thing. P- people are always asking me like, how you know, did you come up with this? I'm like, no, this is the most ancient thing that's out there. You know, like playing in small uh, spaces, but. Yeah, being able to to connect before, after, and, and during on that small scale, I think uh, does does huge things for for me as a performer, uh, and often for for the audience. I think uh, the the feedback I often get after a home show is people wanting to do more things like that, even if it's not like having a home show person in their home, they're like, why aren't we gathering both with the people we know well and the people we know peripherally to do things other than like eat and talk and drink, you know, like, like let's participate and kind of expand the reasons that we gather in these spaces.
1: This is really cool. And it's absolutely fascinating. So, Tell us how you get started. How did you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know you were going to be involved with music? What did you think you would be? So, you know, tell us about your childhood and then lead up to now. Sure.
0: Um, I was always singing songs and uh, singing show tunes and stuff. My parents loved loved the theater and had a lot of stuff on in the house all the time, and everyone thought I was going to be a performator, a performator which is a very rare type of performer. <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, and my way of kind of rebelling against that, and everyone's expectations was to be like, no, no, I'm not going to do any of that. You know, I'm going to be, I don't know. Yep.
1: A... What did you say you were going to be?
0: Uh I
1: think, like, I, I'm think i going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a baseball player.
0: I think the first choice was a spaceman who eats televisions. Ooh,
1: that's
0: that. Yeah. And then I got a little older. I realized that was unlikely. Uh, <laughs> no, no. The mothership is coming. That's true. That's true. Actually, I heard on the radio this morning that uh, Elon Musk, the billionaire behind SpaceX, is building a fleet of 1,000 spaceships that will be able to take 80 people up to Mars and colonize Mars, and he's planning on having... Fifty thousand people there by 2050.
1: He he's going to need people like you and me. He's going to need novelists and musicians. We should apply now. It's
0: true. I don't. I might leave that one to you, Tracy, because <laughs> I kind of like um, oxygen, you know, mainly. And uh, you know, radiation's cool, but uh, small doses when needed. Um, but then yeah, I kind of came to music late. When I was 21, I sort of realized I'd been. Avoiding instruments and avoiding really exploring that and uh, and writing songs and singing, and so I bought a banjo. I'd met this this banjo player five years earlier, Akira Satake. who uh, was a wonderful musician and incredible potter. I met him in North Carolina when I was eighteen, and he gave me these twenty CDs that uh, many of which he'd been a part of producing to to listen to music from all around the world. And I listened to that for the next. Uh, you know, four years, and then called him up, said, I bought a banjo. Do you know anyone who would be willing to teach me? And he said, come down to North Carolina, live in my basement, work for me five hours a day with clay and, and the pots, and I'll, I'll play with you every night. Um, wow. So I went down there, and I, I lived with this.
1: So that was an apprenticeship?
0: Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: of sorts. Um, I learned a great deal from him. I think we both kind of had this idea or hope that I'd I'd go down there and just like do nothing but practice the banjo for eight hours a day in a very intensive way and kind of maybe emerge uh you know a technical instrumentalist. But as I got more and more into it I just got more excited about playing uh, a variety of instruments on a on a simpler level and just creating an arsenal of sound to be able to communicate different kinds of songs and and songwriting. Um so I moved away from like the furious intention of you know intensive bluegrass picking and everything and started finding my more uh eclectic and theatrical voice.
1: Your personal human vision of your music. Sure.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. I like that. <laughs> um but yeah, that was hugely informative, and 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 probably even more so than than technical things or any foundational understanding of music. Um, from that relationship, watching Akira, my teacher, uh, work as as a potter and as an artist, and see his his process and uh, how he just never stopped creating, never stopped like working, and and he lived and lives his life kind of always in a factory of ideas. Even if he's kind of cooking, he's, he's tying that into his, his creative world and being around that work ethic, uh, was, was huge for me. And, and I really had to sort of develop that for myself in my early twenties because I hadn't really, um, been, been, been pushed into knowing what hard work meant, uh, until that point. Um, yeah, so that was huge. And then I, I left that and joined a band with some friends of mine, and we lived together in rural Massachusetts working all the time and ended up touring across the country playing 62 shows in like 67 days wow. from
1: <laughs> Boston
0: to California and back. I mean, it was just... Epic.
1: What was the name of your band and what kind of music?
0: Uh, we called it Garage Folk. And uh, at the time, the that band was called Know How On, which is the name of a short Beckett play. Uh, yeah, and we grew hugely together in that tour, and I kind of that really put the understanding in my bones of what a tour like that can do for your development. I mean, there's nothing like just being on the road every day and playing every night to to get good at something and all the work too when you have no following and no like foundation all the work that goes into booking a tour like that and making it happen makes the stakes so much higher for you to succeed and get better and figure out you know what's working and what's not um so that lesson from 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 that project was very present with me when i was developing my my first tour which ended up being in new zealand uh when i figured i wanted to try playing in people's homes part of that was also i just i hated clubs I mean, I've always kind of never been crazy about clubs or venues. I mean, I don't go to big concerts a lot. It's just kind of too many people for me. It's it's uh, just aesthetically, it's not. It doesn't speak to me, you know. Um, and so I was tired of of being in those places. And yeah, I started in in, in New Zealand because uh, my dear. F-
1: so I'm sorry to interrupt. This is your solo tour.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is the first time I toured solo, uh, the first home show that I made.
1: This is you on your own in someone's home in New Zealand. Yeah,
0: yeah. And at this point, when I left for New Zealand, I hadn't, other than a few uh, open mics in upstate New York kind of trying out some songs, I hadn't played my songs for anyone. I hadn't performed as a solo show. I hadn't shared my songs with, an audience in an intentional way like that. So I kind of threw myself off the deep end and put myself in a position where uh, it was so severe, there was no escape. You know? It was like I'm going to New Zealand to do a tour, and because I'm going that far and like spending this much money to get there, this tour has to be epic and like a, <laughs> like a, it has to be a ton of shows to warrant that kind of planning and everything. And And then that just builds on, itself. okay, I'm going to do a ton of shows and then I have to do so much work like preparing to get over there. And and that's often really helped me kind of like making outlandish goals or plans like way in advance and then talking to friends about them uh, over time would help me feel accountable to that idea, you know? So when I started... Planning on New Zealand. I just talk about it all the time. Well before I even, you know, laid the 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 plans down.
1: What I'm hearing is something I believe in, which is a big dream with accountability, inspiration, and hard work leads to something kind of wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. And and you know, when young performers or, or people getting started on making their own path ask me like for advice, which oddly enough happens these days. Um, Often I, I tell folks to just like be unreasonable, you know. I mean, the with the internet and the networking capabilities, there's there's so much access to every kind of DIY possibility that's out there. That you know, if you have an odd intention, dream, or it it seems like out of reach, I think it's it's kind of just a matter of allocating the time and the understanding of what kind of muscle it takes to build the network to make it make it happen. Um, And, yeah, so I went went to New Zealand with just five shows booked on couchsurfing.org and my thought was that I would use that website which is a kind of social networking website for travelers, people who want to host travelers and travelers who want to be hosted in people's homes. And after, like, the third show, people in my audiences started grabbing my map of New Zealand and saying and drawing a line from a place somewhere else in the country, saying, "Oh, you gotta meet my friend Tracy here in in you know uh, Mount Maunganui They would <laughs> they would love you there and put the address and the phone number and and the map just started filling up with that and then I that's how I started making shows. So that whole system of people at the shows drawing on my maps and giving me my entire network came accidentally out of folks just grabbing my stuff and writing it and I soon realized that was that was the way to do it. You know, that was a gold mine. Um and I went to New Zealand also in part because I was just starting out and didn't really have a lot of confidence uh in my ability to do any of this stuff. Uh my buddy Hubcap, who I've now made a, a two man show with, he'd been to New Zealand and he said you know that's an incredible place to develop a show, especially if you want to be playing in small towns and out of the big cities, because the island's so isolated. Any big acts that come to New Zealand just play in the three big cities: Christchurch, Wellington, and and uh, what's it called, Auckland. And he said people will just be so happy that you've come there, you know, and that have that you've worked hard to get out there on your bike hauling 200 pounds of instruments behind you, you know, that they'll be, they'll support you in kind of wherever you are in your process. And that's not to say, like, Kiwis are, you know, like, uncultured or can't, you know, don't know a good performance, but it is very different. I would have never been able to start out the way I was at that point in New York City where everybody's seen everything under the sun. You know, we're so much more jaded here. I was showing up in these towns, and people were just so excited to see me pulling out my wacky, you know, from instruments from around the world and uh and giving my songs fully to them you know wherever they were at i mean and in the process of of 80 shows i mean that that first month my shows were i don't know i think kind of a disaster people people received me really warmly you know but to me from a performer they were just kind of a, a mess and i didn't know what the vision of them was you know but playing every night uh and working so hard physically for each show. Just uh you know, I, I kept crafting it and and by the end of that tour I felt like I had something I was really proud of.
1: That's a really interesting evolution of a performer and artist, musician. And I just want to ask you, what's the weirdest home show you ever did? What's the weirdest experience you had doing one? Well that's yeah, that's something
0: interesting about it. I mean people often think because you're out there in so many different people's homes that you're going to wind up, you know, every now and then in just some bizarrely uncomfortable or strange circumstance that's uh hilarious or unbearable.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and what's funny is because all these hosts are written down on the map because they've popped into someone's head who thinks they'd be a great match for like this kind of thing, I never end up in a place that's an odd fit, you know, uh, people, are people still take risks with me or, or they, they're like kind of on the fence, but you know, their spouse is like, Oh honey, just go for it. You know, let's <laughs> do this. Let's see what it is. Um, so there's definitely like a wide range within that. But by the time I get to someone's house, we've often exchanged like somewhere between 15 and 25 emails setting up every show. And there's, kind of an understanding and a clarity, you know, in 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 what it's going to involve. I mean, that being said, the 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 weird ones or the challenging ones just a handful that come up was uh there was it was a home of of mostly um kind of conservative republican folks in Arizona that uh that kind of seemed deeply offended by my aesthetic of, of just my setup so before I even got to sing a note oh. or start the show I felt like I'd already lost them you know oh. and and uh, your job as a performer is to win them back you know from right. the beginning but they were just uh, remarkably unresponsive to the point where it was beyond horrible it was just humorous you know uh-huh. and in a moment like that you're no longer trying to do a good show you're just trying to survive <laughs> the moment but Sure enough, there was one woman in the front row who was, like, totally with me and so excited about what was happening. So I played the show for her, you know, and I did the best job I could. And the other 39 people behind her who just, like, wanted to die, (laughs) uh, I kind of let them, you know, fade away. And it was was an interesting experience. I mean, that was the one.
1: So tell us about a great experience you had. Yeah.
0: And that was the one time where I felt like, how did I end up? In this place, you know, um out of four hundred shows, which is just great, you know, I'm sure there'll be more um a great experience is 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 so many of them, most of them uh, I mean, an amazing thing happened at 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 one host's house in a small town in uh southern Utah, where we'd scheduled one day off the doing the Gideon and Hubcap show with my buddy hubcap uh we scheduled our one day off to go for horseback rides through these slot canyons you know with our host and she took us on this incredible ride uh, through these canyons it was gorgeous we're jumping up these little rock beds and streams it was a highlight of our trip and we put the horses in this trailer and they're going up this big hill to turn the trailer around and go back home and we're telling our host we're telling her thank you so much that was amazing Uh, we can't get over that it was so much fun and she screams and slams on the brakes and says oh my god the trailer and the trailer had come Unhitched from the truck, and we're on a steep hill oh. with a 400 foot drop on one side into a ravine, oh and we start running after this trailer, not knowing what to. I mean, there's you know a couple thousand pounds of horse in there. I don't know what, how we're going to stop it. And then the trailer takes a turn on its own and it goes right off the cliff, and we hear the horses scream and then a huge crash, oh. and it was like completely devastating and shock. I mean, we were just in shock, you know, and our host was undone. And uh, we were sure that it had fallen, you know, all the way down into the ravine. And we went to go get some neighbors and get a a gun in case, you know, one of them was down. I mean, it it was clearly that situation. And when we got some folks and came back, we looked over the edge and the trailer had just fallen 80 feet. And it rolled a couple times. It was twisted metal everywhere. And these three horses were upside down on top of each other, twisted blood everywhere. It was hanging off the edge of the cliff held by one dead tree stump, like teetering, like in a – Bad action movie. And the whole town started showing up. I thought they were going to have to put the horses down because it just looked like none of them could recover. The whole town started showing up. One guy jumped in there, wiggled his body between the horses, tied a strap to the top one's waist, and it was pulled up by a truck up the road. And when they got it onto its side, it was able to stand up and walk out of the thing. And they couldn't believe its legs weren't broken. And then they did the same thing with the next horse, all the while the trailers like falling further off the cliff. They did the next thing with the next horse. The second horse stood up on its legs, walked out. And then the bottom horse that everyone was convinced was dead because it didn't even look like it was breathing. It was totally crushed by the other two. When the weight was off of it from the other two horses, it stood up and walked out. And the whole day went from being this huge tragedy to this massive celebration, you know. And our show was, like, the culminating thing of that celebration. I mean, these were, like, hardened cowboys who have just seen everything, and everyone was, you know, reduced to tears and trauma. It was a horrible, horrible, violent, awful scenario. And then we kind of, like, got to all recover from that around the show. Um,
1: so none of the horses died?
0: No, they all survived. None of them got colic, which is twisted intestine uh, that they can have after trauma. Yeah, they all survived, and... uh yeah we stayed in touch you know with that with that family and with that town um you know it' was a town of two hundred people like there were sixty or seventy who were at our show that night, you know and uh I was just there a couple months ago and riding horses you know with those with those same folks back in the uh back in the hills there and there's you know people are excited because we're just we or I am just there for like one night, you know, and I'm bringing. I'm bringing what we have to offer, you know, or what what we've made and worked on uh, so hard uh, and transmitting that to an audience. So folks often are really ready and willing and able to share with us their special thing that they have in the town, you know, whether it's riding horses through the canyons or this artifact in their home that their grandmother smuggled over from Scotland or something or – we have such a limited time for that moment that people often break out the most wonderful little nugget that they can share with us, you know, uh, either about life or their town or something they have to offer. And that's really special.
1: Have you thought about writing about this or video documenting it? Cause it would be a great, like document. I mean, it'd be a charming, delightful and wonderful documentary when you're ready to share visually what you do.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing. So I've, uh, on GoPro cameras, I've recorded every travel and every show that I've done. So on the bicycle, I always had the GoPro camera running. So basically, I can speed up and, like, time-lapse that entire trip. You know, it's like a 1,000 gigabytes of footage. I can speed that up and condense it into two minutes. So you can see, like, 3,000 miles of New Zealand on a bicycle in three minutes, you know. And uh, I record the shows for reference and have used them in some small video projects and promotion stuff and fundraising a friend of mine who's a wonderful photographer Larry Ford um, made his first uh, film a short documentary on my New York tour the one on rollerblades pushing the modified shopping cart and did a beautiful job with that uh, and we just released that like six months ago or so it's called uh, A Good Way to Get Around I think <laughs> Uh and that, yeah that was that was really wonderful labor of love and uh it's interesting the prospect of bringing a, a filmmaker into the homes with me because it's already like such a sensitive tender space you know it's people's homes yeah. and i get to go into them because uh because I've been recommended by a friend. Because we've had like this back and forth on email, you know. So there's this trust that's uh, established, and uh, and I'm sharing my show with them, and they're sharing their their home and their friends with me. So bringing another person who's just an observer or who's just recording that kind of you know somewhat sacred thing to me or us um, can be can be complicated. So looking forward uh, to film projects, because I would love to to document this further, especially when in future tours I'm planning on touring by like boat, and touring on horseback across the country and uh, all kinds of stuff like that. I'd love to do a video project, but you've got to find that way where there's a reason or it's okay for that third party to be there.
1: Talk about being a businessman while also being an artist musician. How did you evolve your business model or did you structure it from the beginning and how have you had to think outside the box in order to get to this point?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, It's been really hard and a very like slow uh, climb and learning curve. Um, you know, to be honest, a very real part of my reality with this whole thing was uh, the support I had uh, from my family and my parents. In in them telling me, like, since I was a kid, just, yes, follow your dreams like you can do anything, you know, that being instilled in me uh, being a huge help. But then also, you know, when I was developing this and making these shows or, or trying to put it together before it was economically viable... Uh, spent a lot of time living in their apartment with them, you know, and I'm in my late 20s at this point, and that was that time of trial and error with making shows and figuring out how to not just ask audiences to give you money and support if they're having a great time, but invite them into that transaction, you know, Um, rather than saying, you have to pay for this, and it's this much money, finding fun ways to uh to allow people to to support you with their money and and getting yeah money. how
1: does it work do the hosts do their their tickets do the host pay you how does it work
0: so most of my shows have just been um donation based and uh always sliding scale because that's my favorite kind of economic model you know uh my job is to do a great show and you know move you or blow your mind or just give you a really good time for a night and if i'm doing my job i want you to not feel like you have to give me this amount but just be so excited to give me as much money as you can you know um and that's been a really long journey to 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 figure that out so it's about the language that i put in the show blurb that goes to the host that goes to the invitations, you know, so that people know there's a sliding scale donation. Um it's about, you know, I've always I've always hated the money ask in, in performances or like hawking a CD or something. It takes me out of the show. It takes me out of the performance. So I found a way to make my money ask or talking about my merchandise a super performative and musical act, you know, and make the giving of your money to me like part of the fun, part of the evening. And, and you know, creative, fun ways, lots of different ways. You know, one of the options at times for sliding scale donation has been the roll of three dice, you know, um, like, uh, and making it, it interactive. Also, it's hugely important to me in that model that anyone who's invited to a show and wants to come can, you know. So I, on one hand, I have to make a living and would, you know, part of me would love to make every show, like, twenty dollars a ticket, forty dollars a ticket, sixty dollars a ticket, you know, depending on where you are. And uh and I feel the show is worth that. I mean, you know, Broadway ticket to a show that is, you know, garbage, you know, hundreds of dollars. It's it's interesting how we value that stuff. Um but yeah, so so making it sliding scale like that allows someone who can only afford five dollars to still be there and uh and participate and maybe donate in a rich way in contacts. You know, maybe someone only has five dollars, but gives me three contacts in England and two people in New Orleans and somebody in Alaska who's you know lives in a redwood geodesic dome next to a mountain spring and has pet llamas. You know, <laughs> I mean that's like I'd way rather have that connection is priceless to me. You know, um, so there's a lot of different ways that that, that people contribute, but also learning the craft of that language and that invitation economically um and it's different very different for each show has allowed me to make enough money from you know patrons and audience members who who can afford larger amounts to also continue doing shows for uh people and folks in communities who don't who don't have that much you know liquid cash
1: Tell us about your Kickstarter campaign.
0: Oh, yeah, so and Kickstarter, yeah, was a was a huge point of also buying buying me that time in the beginning of figuring out this stuff. Um, so this is because uh, this is my third Kickstarter that I've oh, done. About
1: the first two the yeah,
0: yeah, the first one was for the New Zealand tour, um, and yeah, people responded so well. I tried, you know, my goal was five thousand dollars, and I ended up raising. $15,000, you know, and even from a lot of people who I'd never even met, you know, who heard about the project and were just like, what, what, <laughs> that sounds really hard and like uncomfortable and exciting and beautiful. Like, I'd love to hear about that. Um, so that was really encouraging. Uh, and the amazing thing about that was a big part of that money was to sustain that trip because I didn't have any confidence that playing in people's homes, you could actually make money. But then I got over there and people were incredibly generous, you know? I mean, people were throwing in 10, 20, 30, 40 dollars a night, you know, because they liked the show, because they liked the the spirit of what I was doing and they and they had a great time. So that um kind of made me understand the the possibilities of this economically when I hadn't even gotten to really experiment with it that much. Um the second kickstarter was uh, for a music video that we did in one shot with a uh, uh, one of my favorite directors and a dear friend of mine, and then uh, he actually shot a uh, a very funny kind of Gonzo surrealist, not that surrealist.
1: Uh, Where can we see the videos?
0: The video that we have up now is on on Kickstarter. If you search for the Gideon and Hubcap Show on Kickstarter, you'll find our campaign. We've just got three days left, um, and we've just got a couple thousand dollars to 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 go. So we're really excited to. Uh, hopefully make that goal. We could use any help from anyone out there, any uh, small or large donations are are huge. And we've got a really funny video that we spent a week making. We flew our our friend, the director Ewan Wright, out from uh, L.A. to make this thing and have all kinds of wild guest appearances and uh, wacky antics. Um, And that was really fun to to put that together. And and it's been great to see how, how people are responding. And excited to send us out there. So this is the two-man show that I made with my best friend Hubcap, um who's an incredible musician and and scholar. He's a, you know, I'm I don't know what I am, but it's not really a musician. I mean, I play a bunch of instruments and I make shows that I'm proud of and I sing songs. But what I do is I figure out how to use these tools for the songs I need to make. I don't know anything about music, really. I mean, I don't know how to read music. I can't, like, sit down with musicians and jam and improvise, you know. Um, I know very little, but I've made it work for, you know, my own little world. Hubcap, on the other hand, he's a historical musicologist and a classically trained jazz pianist, and it's just, you know, he was gigging in clubs when he was 14 years old, you know, and I I grew up, we were friends in high school, and I grew up, you know, idolizing that with him and his friends. Um, But again, like he had that backbone and work ethic and discipline as a young kid, uh, which I had none of, you know. Um,
1: I I just have to comment, you know, my husband is a classical figurative sculptor, and he's one of the hardest working people I know. He just works, well, he says he works as much as I'll let him because I make him come home for dinner. But he, you know, there's... In, I think real art and true art, there's, there's, you don't wait for inspiration. You get up every morning as early as you can. You go do it all day. You work your ass off 14, 20 hours a day, and then you know you get up the next day and do it all over again. There's, it's not as glamorous as people think.
0: Totally, and I think that speaks to kind of a cultural shift with reality television and just our relationship to celebrity and YouTube where we all kind of think – everyone can be a star for any moment kind of like instantly you know even however false that is we have enough examples of that kind of happening in the world um that it can kind of distract us from the undeniable reality of like no one gets anywhere with their craft in in a really big way uh without just working tirelessly all the time
1: so I talked. My first show for independent artists and thinkers was with the dancer and artistic director Lori Bella of the Isadora Duncan Dance Company and Foundation, and she and I talked about how artists work for 20 years before becoming an overnight success. Do you see that happening to you?
0: I mean, I don't know what an overnight success looks like. I mean, I feel like I feel like a success. You know, it's interesting. People, if people see my show and they think it's really great and feel, um, I'm not saying, you know, everyone feels that, but, you know, I can can say that people respond well to the show. It feels great. I love it. But often people say, like, oh, man, like, you could do this in a theater, or, like, you guys could go to wherever with this. And that's kind of where our brains go, you know, like, bigger, more people, like, more money, the contract or something. But for me, that further success is just like more homes, you know, like more interesting people in uh, more interesting places who can continue like sharing their world with me and letting me share mine.
1: So where do you see your work in five years, 10 years, 20 years?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot more of what I'm doing. I've loved making different shows for people's homes. You know, being in the home allows you to make a different kind of show. Um you know, you can get very quiet. You know, you have all these people to interact with. You can interact with people's actual, like, objects. You know, you can turn that environment into a a set of it. That doesn't mean I, like, run around the room touching people's stuff. But, um... (laughs) So I love... I love just thinking about making different kinds of shows, you know? Like, a slightly more serious show, you know? A show with more magic, a more minimalist show where all my instruments kind of, like, fit into one suitcase, you know? Uh, a, A show with larger set pieces, the collaboration I did with the Foundry Theater. And that was commissioned. That was an opportunity I got from this amazing theater company in New York. They saw what I did and the artistic director said, will you make a show, you know, with us? And that was a two-year process of kind of working in collaboration with them and making a home show with their relationship to kind of like, you know, theatrical meaning. Um, So... You know, working on a on a kids show. You know, uh, I'd love to work have several home shows with different artists. You know, I've made one with Hubcap. I'd love to make one with my friend uh, Julia Reed. I'd love to make one with some family members. You know, and so that's kind of the ultimate vision. And and how it gets bigger and better to me is just continuing to learn how to craft these networks. How to make my administrative life easier because I'm just I have to spend a, way too much time on the internet with emails just to set this stuff up. But that being said, I've learned how to streamline things. I've learned how to explain things better the first time, so there's less questions, you know. And as I get more press, you know, I've been covered by all these all these great publications now. That acts as levels of, uh, you know, accountability. Like so, when people see that I've been kind of accepted by this magazine or that paper or something, they're a little less cautious about inviting me into their home. You know, it it, it gives that, that comfort.
1: They're not worried that you're some weirdo who's going to run around and touch all their belongings.
0: Yeah, yeah. I only, you know, we go through uh, what belongings I can touch and what I can't. Yeah, because it's a big deal to let somebody into your home. And also when I'm on tour, you know, I'm staying with the hosts that night. And that's, you know, that's a huge... Uh, part of it for me just being able to like have a little bit of extra time with them in the space in the morning you know and that part's not not uh so so rushed um so also you know the future a big part of that to me is being able to tour in some other unusual ways i mean i've been wanting to tour by horseback for a long time and i've slowly been whittling away at those plans you know that's like a six-year intention you know to get the money for the horses to map out the route, you know, to have somewhat of a support team, if something goes wrong, you know, Uh, some kind of documentation project for that finding the homes, like right now, in in the states, I've got potential host contacts in, in every state, you know, but then the next level of that is like, okay, I need places where I can have my horse, you know, with me. So that's, just getting way more context to kind of pinpoint that specificity
1: kind of like the Commedia dell'arte.
0: yeah yeah tell me about that again more i know i know,
1: I know <laughs> traveling shows in the middle ages yeah kind of um yeah totally. so we just have about four minutes left so tell us how people can find you, where they can find out about you, how they can contact you, if they're interested in a home show. Tell us everything, where you can be reached, where you can be found, Facebook, social media, websites, everything. Cool.
0: So so the main thing I always try to really convey is that I am planning on going everywhere at some point. So if anyone out there is interested in hosting a show in their home or has any idea of someone they know that they think uh, would love to do that, uh, anywhere in the world, uh you send me a note at it's true, my name is Gideon, um at gmail.com, or go to my website, my or me and Hubcap's website, Hubcap and Gideon. What is it? Hubcap and com No, the Gideon oh God, it's a new website. Gideon dot com. That's our new website, Gideon and dot com. And um and then we start a start a conversation or right? get in touch with your friends. And uh, Kickstarter. Kickstarter, yeah, we've got a couple days left on that. Uh, it's a ridiculously fun video, even if you don't have a couple dollars to throw our way. Um, check out the video. Share it online if you, if you can or you fancy. And uh, if you're in Edinburgh this summer, uh, we're bringing our show to the Edinburgh Fringe. It's the largest arts festival in the world, 3,000 shows and 800 venues in a month. And we're playing at the Underbelly uh, in their Coup space. Uh, Nineteen shows in twenty days
1: what is the underbelly
0: the underbelly is is one of the premier uh venues at the fringe it 's a uh, giant purple cow that 's upside down i think in the middle <laughs> in the middle of the city uh from what i've been told and they 've got a bunch of venues inside there and and the fringe you know that 's our first experiment kind of stepping out of the home um and whereas most performers at the fringe are kind of presenting to European presenters uh, for gigs at different, you know, theaters or clubs, our presenters that we're interested in are the audiences. You know, those are our possible future producers and hosts. Um, So we'll continue with our maps up there. And part of the intention there is to, you know, expand our international network of, of possible hosts for the future.
1: So horseback on the United States, Soon, six years, in the next yeah. six years. And then where else besides in Edinburgh in the world did you and Hubcap want to go?
0: Um, you know, anywhere that uh, people will have us where we're likely not to get shot in the head sounds pretty <laughs> sounds pretty good. Um, after the Hubcap tour, I'm going to be touring a solo show of mine through homes in uh, Germany and England and Scotland and Ireland. Oh, hello. And uh that's uh September through December. So if anyone's out there, uh yeah, I'd love to to hear from you as well.
1: Gideon, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for being on this. I really am grateful.
0: Thank you so much, Tracy. There's uh there's a wonderful thing you're doing and uh it's been a privilege to be here.
1: Well, I'm really excited you were here. So listeners, go to the Kickstarter um website and look for the Gideon Hubcap show and donate some money so that these kids are going to Edinburgh. So thank you so much, Gideon, for being on the show. Um, You've been amazing and wonderful. I'm all excited about your music, and I encourage listeners to go to MyNameIsGideon.com and also GideonAndHubCap.com to learn more about you and your work and the Kickstarter program. And um, to everyone who's listening, thank you so much for joining us. Come back next week, Thursday, July 30th, as mezzo-soprano Elizabeth Deshawn gives us a peek into the world of high opera. Thanks again. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.